There's a lot of confusion between uh, Jesus' second coming and the rapture. But when we looked at the original languages, we saw that it was very clear that the, the rapture was the harpazo uh, in Greek, and the second coming was the parousia. And so two different words are used in the Greek to describe two different separate and distinct events. Uh, and so it becomes very clear. We also saw that there were 15 major differences uh, between the first and second coming. Uh, the rapture comes, Christ comes with the church in the air, and that's going to be a glorious experience. At the second coming, he comes to earth, uh, and so the ones in the air and the others in the earth. Thirdly, we, we see the rapture translation. Uh, at the rapture, there's a translation and a twinkling of an eye. At the second coming, nobody's changed. At the rapture happens before the day of wrath. Aren't you glad about that? It's only the world's greatest uh, (laughs) holocaust, but I'm really glad about that. But anyway, but the rapture happens before the day of wrath, the second coming after. Then we saw that this book stands unique amongst all the scriptures in the world. This book dares to predict the future, which no other religion does. There are no fulfilled prophecies in any other religion other than the Bible. The Bible stands alone, unique, head and shoulders above every other scripture that that has been written, because it contains fulfilled prophecy. This is an amazing book. Only God dares to predict the future. Then we saw in in Revelation 4 how the, the, the church was in heaven. And we saw that the, the proof was that they had received their garments of salvation. How many are looking forward to the garments of salvation? Yes, amen. I, I, I heard that you don't need to wash those garments of salvation. But we have the, the garments of salvation, and we looked at Luke 14, 14. Remember, it says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And again, in First Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, it says, When the chief shepherds have come, you shall receive your crown of glory that fadeth not away. And we saw here in Revelation 4, where the church is already clothed in their garments, their white garments, wearing their crowns, proof that the rapture has already taken place. So back to the mini monologue. Uh, we raptured and we safely in heaven. It's about that time that the Antichrist feels safe to make his move, and he signs the treaty with Israel, uh, the seven-year treaty. Let me just say to you, and this we won't get into it, but between the, the rapture and the tribulation, there's an unknown period of time. Uh, some think it may be pretty short. Others may say it could be even 30 years. Uh, but in that unknown period of time, uh, you, you could have the, the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39, because that's still to be fulfilled, and that's the great battle. And some think that, that the, the, the fact that God destroys the northern armies, Russia, on that really on the outskirts of Israel, is what really brings the 144,000 to faith in Jehovah. It restores their faith in God's miraculous ability to save them. So you have the rapture, then you have the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle, uh, somewhere in there, and then you have the tribulation. And of course, as soon as the Antichrist signs the seven-year treaty, Jesus breaks the seal. That's what triggers the great tribulation, or the tribulation, I should say, to be technically correct. And uh, that lasts for seven years. Okay? And you can read about that in, in Daniel 9, 7, that triggers the, the seven-year uh, tribulation. Then, in the middle of that tribulation period, the seven years, the Antichrist breaks the, the covenant, and that initiates the Great Tribulation. It was bad in the beginning, but how many know it gets so much worse? And we're going to be looking at the so much worse today as we begin to look at it. 
at the end of the great tribulation, Christ returns. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. We are coming back with God to rule and reign on the earth. We have the battle of Armageddon where the, the Antichrist is, de, uh, is defeated and thrown into the bottom of this pit. And Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom for a thousand years uh, where the lion shall lie down in the lamb. And at the end of that, we have the great right, uh, throne judgment. You don't want to be there uh, because that's where God judges the wicked. And after that, you have the new heaven and the new earth and eternity from there. We started looking uh, last week at Revelation chapter 4. We saw that Jesus, it, it's really chapters 4 and 5 really flow together. And we saw how the, 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 the divisions happened about 500 years ago so we could navigate our way around the scriptures. But in Revelation 4, we saw that Jesus is worshipped as, as the creator. And in Revelation 5, he's worshipped as the redeemer. We saw last week that that Jesus as, as creator and redeemer was the only one that was worthy to open the book. And remember we saw John sees the, the picture of the Lamb uh, as though it had been slain, standing in the throne of heaven. And, and so you have Jesus, the slain Lamb, standing on the throne. It really speaks of Christ's deity. Man, this, no, no man is ever going to stand on the throne of God. Amen? Amen. This really is positive proof that Jesus Christ is God Almighty. And, and, and John Pastor, said, can I just ask you, what was your heading for this message? I had to go to the ladies room. The, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen. We're going to get to that uh, in, in a moment. But um, it's, where was I? Um, Sorry. Oh yeah, John was seeing the, the lamb on, on the throne, and, and he adds three important aspects to the slain lamb on the throne. The, the, the seven eyes, the seven uh, heads, and, and the uh, seven spirits are God. And it really speaks about... Uh, the seven horns of the power is omnipotent. His omnipresence, uh, because God is uh, uh, everywhere, and Christ's omniscience. So we see again that, that John the Revelator is really drawing attention to the greatness of Jesus Christ. You cannot miss the fact that Jesus is God if you read Revelation. <laughs> and that's where the cults score, because a lot of people don't study the book of Revelation, and so they're ignorant of it, and they can come and they can confuse people about Jesus. But he is really God in the flesh. Amen. And so uh, we looked at uh, verse 7. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sits in the sun. I want you to add a little bit to, to what we're saying about uh, the, the book of Ruth. Um, I just want to develop that a little bit uh, because we were talking about the Goel, the Kingsman Redeemer, and how uh, um, it was a picture of Christ coming to redeem the earth after Adam had sinned. And the account of the Goel, the Kingsman Redeemer, uh, actually comes straight out of the book of the Ruth. And it's a perfect picture of God's redemption. And so what I want to do is typologically, as you look at, as you look at the book of Ruth, it's very, very interesting. And I, I haven't got all the, the time to really develop that. Um, but if you study it, there's so much more than I'm going to give you now. But let me just say to you, uh, we're going to look at the main characters and the plot in the book of Ruth, in 30 seconds. It's going to be my fastest <laughs> sermon ever. Okay, Naomi, there are three principal characters in the book of Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth. Um, Naomi represents the Israelites. The law of redemption is enacted because the land was redeemed by, for Naomi by Boaz. Uh, Ruth labors in, in Boaz's uh, harvest field, and really that's a picture of the church um, Laboring for souls, reaping souls for the kingdom of God. Uh, 
Boaz is our hero because he's also the lord of the harvest. Ruth labors in that harvest field, which, as I said, is a picture of the church reaping souls for Christ. Boaz is also the kinsman redeemer, and he marries Ruth, a Gentile bride. So putting the book of Ruth together, in 30 seconds, what do you have? You have a Jewish kinsman redeemer, a savior, a Christ-like figure, who's lord of the harvest, marrying a Gentile bride, which incidentally is forbidden under the law. But what the law couldn't do, grace did. And so what you have is this beautiful picture of, of the gospel that's hidden in the book of Ruth. Um, and so just, I, I just thought that might be interesting to you uh, as we move on. So it's a complete picture of, of salvation to the Jew first, to Naomi first, and to Ruth the Gentile, uh, and for the Gentiles, Ruth. Okay. We've been saying that the book of Revelation is a really a revelation about Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. Mm-hmm. And so as we're studying it, we're learning about the, the message <coughs> and the ministry of Christ in its totality. In the book of Matthew, we see Jesus as the Lamb of God. In the book of Revelation, he appears as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In Matthew, uh, he wears a crown of thorns. In the book of Revelation, he wears many crowns. He wears the the royal diadem. He's crowned with many crowns. Uh, In Matthew, he has blood and spittle on his face. In Revelation, his face shines with the glory of the sun. In Matthew, he is the suffering servant. In Revelation, He's judge and king that rules and reigns forever and ever. That's the picture that we're going to get hold of. That this Jesus that we worship is king and judge. And no one will oppose him. He's going to rule and reign forever and ever. Amen? Mm -hmm. And that's the full revelation of, of Jesus. And we're going to expound it. Jesus is on the throne. The place of all power and authority. The throne of God, no less. Revelation 5, 9. I want to just start to start to pick it up and just reintroduce a couple of thoughts um, which I found interesting this week. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people and nation. This is a picture of Jesus the Lamb that died for you and for me. Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' blood purchased our salvation. He purchased our redemption. And He's cleansed us from any and all sin. Both past, present and future. That's the covenant. We've got to stay in the covenant. But if you stay in the covenant, you are safe. Can I have an amen? Amen. So He purchased our redemption. He purchased our salvation. We're forgiven. We're sanctified. We're made righteous. We made the righteousness of God in Christ. That's the transformation that we have in the eyes of God. He, as he looks at his son Jesus and he looks at you, he sees no difference in holiness and purity because we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Mm-hmm. You are worthy by the mm-hmm. shed blood of Jesus. You're made righteous in a spectacular way. And, and so really what are we seeing here? We're seeing that sinners have become saints to God. Isn't that the truth? Isn't your life different because Jesus is here? Isn't your life different because now you want to live and honor and worship God? So sinners, which we were formerly more, have now become saints unto the Lord. Not by our own works, but by His work. And that's what's important to remember. As we're going through the time of judgment, as we're going through the, through the things that are going to unfold in, in, in the tribulation, people get very afraid. 
But if you can remember that we are saved not by our works, but by His, mm. we don't need to fear the tribulation. Yeah. Because Jesus has saved us from that. So, remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith. Grace, undeserved Unmerited favor. You do not merit salvation. You, do, you don't warrant salvation. But salvation is being given to us because of God's unconditional love. Amen. And that's the amazing thing. That God knows you and with all your weaknesses, with all your faults, and with all your failings. And God still loves you. And He says, <laughs> I'm going to give you a pass. My judgment is sufficient for what you have endured and what you've become. So now Jesus steps forward and he takes the book in, in Revelation 5, the Biblion, okay, the title deed of the world. Did you know that this was foreseen by the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament? We're going to look at that. I'm going to, I'm going to read you a very familiar portion of Scripture and just see if you can see the implication here. It's a well-known portion of Scripture, Daniel 7, and they're going to read verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Hmm. I want to break that down for you. I don't know how many of you spotted the, 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 the rapture in that. Uh, but let me, let me just break it down for you. I saw in the night visions, he had a dream. And behold, one like the Son of Man. Who is that? That's Jesus. And he came with the clouds of heaven. That's the rapture. He, we are caught up together with, with Christ in the air, uh, in the clouds. And, and he comes to the ancients of death, to, to God the Father. So he, the, the, he brings us into heaven. Uh, and they brought him, Jesus, near before him, God the Father. And there was given to him, Jesus, dominion, glory, and a kingdom. The title deeds of the world have been given to Christ, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. It's amazing to me how consistent the Bible is. There back hundreds of years ago is Daniel prophesying the same thing that, that, that John would later prophesy and that we, we, we are about to see the fulfillment of. It's actually, when you put the two scriptures side by side, it's amazing. Let me put Revelation uh, uh, 5 and 9 next to those Daniel prophecies. Now I just want to read it for you. Because you were slain with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people, and nations. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. There are five points of identification between Revelation uh, 5, 9, and Daniel 7. The Bible is consistent. We can, we can trust the scriptures, because the story remains the same, no matter who tells it. It's, it's, the, it's the important message that we get. So, what Daniel saw prophetically will ultimately be fulfilled after the rapture. We're going to be standing in, 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 in heaven when, when Jesus comes forward to take the title deeds. You and I are actually going to see Christ receive the title deeds to the world. I think that's exciting. <laughs> we'll see Jesus receive and open the scroll, the title deeds to the earth. But you know, there could also be a, 
another message. And I, I'm just throwing this out because uh, Jeremiah has, has something to say about this. And it's, it's quite interesting. Do you remember during the, the Babylonian captivity, they, they, they were about to be taken out of the land and um, you know the, the, the land was conquered, subdued, and they were going off for, for 70 years into captivity. And God says to Jeremiah, I want you to go and buy some property. If you're a businessman, how do you know when the whole country is going to to, to depart and you've been exiled? Not a good time to go and buy property. But that's exactly what God says to Jeremiah. He says, go and tell your servant, go and buy a property and get the title deeds. Because I am going to bring you back to the land. That was the message that that Jeremiah was given, that God is going to give him the title deed because the Jews were coming back to the land. And that's what I believe is is symbolically taking place, is what's happening in heaven, the title deeds. Could this be the message of the title deed, that we're going to return to the land with Christ and share in his magnificent millennial kingdom? I believe it is. Because it's spelled out in Revelation. But it's also here symbolically. It's just how the Bible fits together. Line upon line. Precept upon Here a little and there a little. It just adds and builds so that we can see God's perfect plan of redemption. I want you to notice verse 10 of, of, of verse uh, chapter 5. You have made them, in other words, the church, a kingdom of priests, to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Notice the promise that the redeemed shall reign upon the earth. Did you see that? We're going to reign. That's exciting, because we're going to reign with Christ. We are co-heirs with God and joint heirs with Jesus. I think that that's fantastic. But there are some people who deny that, that Jesus has a millennial reign at all. They don't see that in the book of Revelation. And I, I want to show you that this is really very clear uh, in, in, uh, as we get, go through it. Those who deny uh, Jesus reign on the earth are actually called the amillennialists, okay? And they, they argue that, that Christ is reigning through his saints and the church right now. Pastor, what was that scripture 5? 10. And what else? Revelation. Revelation 5.10. That's where we're based on uh, at the moment. Revelation 5.10. And we're we're reigning on the earth. Those that deny um, that we reign on earth, they say that the church is ruling and reigning now. And if if that's true, I I would argue that that, uh, God is doing a very poor job because the world (laughs) is in revolt and rebellion and the church is falling into great apostasy. If this is God ruling and reigning on the earth, I don't think it's happening. It doesn't fit with the world that I live in. I cannot see that the church is ruling and reigning and and, uh, the the world's a better place for the church being here. No. (coughs) Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 9 says this. That during Christ's reign, basically, that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as, as the waters cover the sea. You remember that scripture? We are living today in days of gross darkness, ignorance, and Bible illiteracy. That's why you can have gay churches. It's an anathema. It's absolutely impossible. You can have the, the, the church of pedophiles. No. It's impossible. It's, it's heresy. It's apostasy. We are living in days of gross darkness, ignorance, and Bible illiteracy. 
When Jesus comes in the future, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Mm. I want to read you the sevenfold blessings. Just very quickly, I'm just going to read the sevenfold blessings of Christ. Revelations 12 uh, through 14. In a loud voice they're saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was, was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Mm. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You know, the consistency of the scriptures is amazing. Remember when Paul was taken to heaven? He said, I don't know whether I was in the body or whether I wasn't, but he was caught up into into heaven. And he sees the the exalted Christ. And he writes about it in in, in Philippians chapter 2. And we'll see how that mirrors exactly what we've read in Revelation. Remember, this is Paul's version of what takes place in heaven that he saw. Wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What amazing consistency. The Bible stands as a sure document, a trustworthy document. Now, we're going to get to... to uh, Revelation 6, and we're going to see the opening of the seals and the four horsemen that, that go out. But I want to make a statement. Revelation is supposed to prepare us, not scare us. Okay? A lot of people, I, when, I, when I first proposed to uh, preach Revelation and I first went into the ministry, I had people come to me and say, If you preach Revelation, I'm leaving the church. <laughs> they were afraid because their lives weren't living. They didn't understand the covenant that God had, had forgiven them all their sins, past, present, and future, that they were living in the covenant. They said, no, I don't want to hear about what's going to happen. So people get very afraid, but remember your covenant. So if you understand that revelation is not meant to scare us, but to prepare us. The Bible says uh, in Proverbs 22 and verse uh, 3, a prudent man sees danger and takes refuge. He hides. But the simple keep on going and suffer for it. How many believe that forewarned is forearm? Can you say amen? Okay. So, remember our covenant is a covenant of salvation. What are we saved from? We are saved from God's judgment. And it's founded on God's grace. The fact that we are not judged with the wicked is God's grace. Christ bore our judgment at the cross. Our debt has been paid in full. Amen? Hallelujah. Full. It is finished, Jesus said. There's nothing more that needs to be added to the cross. Our judgment has been paid. That's God's grace. Okay. So, now we come to Revelation 6 and and through the rest of the book, 19... Um, so you, you've got uh, some 13 odd chapters, and it covers just a seven year period known as the tribulation. With the church safely ensconced in heaven, let, let, me, let me just digress here just a moment. You, the church is raptured, we're in heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but on earth, earth is still going on. So you've got two scenarios taking place. You've got what's happening with the church in heaven, while there's a different story going on on earth. So let me just 
Thy bless. Just a moment talking about what happens when the church goes. We are raptured. We're caught up into glory. We, and the first thing that happens is we, we go to the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, we, we looked at that some time ago, uh, and, and uh, I won't elaborate on that. But the judgment seat of Christ is not to say whether you are, are saved uh, or, or not saved. The judgment seat of Christ is all about us getting rewards. Remember God, Jesus said that even a cup of cold water given in his name will not lose its reward. Even the smallest detail that you've long since forgotten is going to be rewarded when we, when we, after the rapture. So we're raptured, we go to the judgment seat of Christ, we receive our crowns and our glory and all the blessings, our rewards that follow. And then we enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a seven-year feast. It's the greatest party <laughs> the universe has ever seen, where the church, the bride of Christ, is reunited with the lover of her soul, Jesus Christ. Mm. And so you've got this beautiful party that, that, that we are united with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what's happening in heaven. Because we are saved, we gave our hearts to, to, to Christ. How many know that there's a different picture taking place here on earth? Okay. And we're going to be looking at that this morning. Okay, the earth, at that time that we're in heaven, God's judgments are unfolding. Will you allow me one more digression? I want to explain what, what, what the tribulation's all about. The tribulation is God's grace. Now you might think that that sounds funny because you think, wow, I've just heard it's a terrible time. And yes it is. But you know, it's punctuated over and over again as you go through the book of Revelation with God reaching out to a very stubborn and rebellious people to try and save them. Mm. And so we, we see it, it becomes very important that we understand the, the reason for the judgment is that God is trying to reconcile and redeem even the most stubborn. You know, some people come to the Lord easily. Other people like me, you've got to hit rock bottom. You've got to, you've got to rebel to the nth degree. Anybody here like that? Oh, shame. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know, you come to the end and you think, I can't go on. That's what happens. And that's what the tribulations are. God is not out to destroy people per se. He's trying to take the most stubborn and the most rebellious of the world and bring them to Christ. So it's about restoration and reconciliation. You find that demonstrated throughout the scriptures. I want to give you Hosea chapter 5 and verse 15. A very important scripture. Hosea 5 and 15 says, And I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, affliction, I beg your pardon, in their affliction, they will seek me early. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Chuck Missler says the whole purpose of the tribulation is to, is to bring people to Christ, bring them back to the Lord. And so that, that's really what, what, what's taking place here. So, but it's an interesting passage of scripture. It says, I will go and leave my place. When did God ever go and leave his place? When he came to earth to minister to men. Do you remember John in John 1 and verse 11? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so God has been waiting patiently for the Jewish nation to repent and come back to, 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 uh, to God. And so the tribulation in part is there to bring the stubborn and rebellious back to the Lord. And that's what it's really all about. So, 
I love what Matthew Henry's commentary actually has to say about this because he really brings a beautiful principle to bear which I believe is entirely scriptural. And he says this, Matthew Henry, God gradually comes upon sinners with lesser judgments to prevent the greater. They that be wise take warning. Mm -hmm. Amazing wisdom, isn't it? God is gracious. God doesn't just slam down and destroy us the minute we sin. He gives us time to think about what we've done wrong, and he gives us time to repent. And so there's, uh, he starts with, with, with gentle uh, chidings and gentle rebukes, which grow in more, more intense the longer we resist. God's judgments become greater and greater. He starts with gentle rebukes, which become more intense the longer we resist. Clearly here in the book of Revelation, we are dealing with the most stubborn and rebellious people of all creation. These people are hard case. Amen. They've stubbornly and continuously rejected God's warning and God's discipline. They have despised his loving correction and scorned uh, his discipline. God has a word for them back in, in, in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 1. Think about this. A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. You know, God is always trying to reach out to the wayward, to those that have entered into the pathways of sin. He says he makes the ways of the transgressors hard. That's God's grace. Because when it gets hard, you think there must be an easier way. That's the whole point behind it. So that you turn away from your wrongdoing. And so this is the principle that God is trying to uh, uh, restore and, and, and put into place right here. These people have been really stubborn. And he tries to reach them over and over and over. You know, when you hear something over and over, it loses its, it loses its impact. I used to say to my kids, um, I love you. Man, I, I love you. I love you. I love you. And you know what happened? After a while, I said, oh, Dad, stop telling me that we love you. You love us. You know us. We know it. Lost its impact. When... When God starts to call sinners to repentance, He starts gently and He tries to woo them. And they refuse. They, they carry on in their way with life. He intensifies. And He intensifies. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to repentance. And after a long time, after many rebukes, when God has tried over and over and over and over to reach that person, and they stubbornly refuse, God says, okay, I've seen your heart. You will not change no matter what I say, no matter how long I go. After many rebukes, they will be cut off, and that without warning. When you stubbornly reject God's counsel, refuse to submit to Him, God will judge you. Let me say to you, don't despise God's correction. Really value it, because that's a loving God reaching out. When God says to you, you need to change this, you need to stop. There's a sin in your life that keeps repeating. When God wants to deal with you, you need to deal with that. Amen? Yes, amen. Thank you, Lass. <laughs> you know, the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. God gets angry when, when we don't play uh, games. But again, I want to remind you, the purpose of all God's judgment is what? Reconciliation, restoration. 
Now we come to chapter 6. Now we understand the purpose behind the tribulation is to bring the most stubborn and rebellious to heal. We come to the opening of the seals. Uh, and uh, we're going we, to go to earth now. We're leaving the throne. Remember, John was caught up in, into the heaven. He's, he's in heaven. And now Jesus is opening the seals. And the focus now is transferred back onto earth. This is what happens to earth. The tribulation starts, and this is the subject of much of the rest of the book of Revelation, but the opening of the seals begin God's judgment, and we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride out to destroy it. Okay, this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know? This is not the one that they laughed at, mocked at, spat at, and, and, and whipped. Uh, this is not the suffering saviour anymore. This is the King of Kings, the judge of the whole earth, who is standing up to hold the wicked accountable for what they've done. You know, it, it, it appears to me that the world ha has looked at Christian life and they mock us and ridicule us. They think we're stupid. Why don't we go and get, you know, go and get drunk? Why don't we do the things that they do? Because there is a God who's going to hold us accountable for our sins. That's why we don't do what they do. You know, they think we're foolish. They, they feel that they can do whatever they like with impunity. That there's no God or somehow the God that there is is powerless to stop them or do anything about their sin. How wrong they were. And this is what we're going to find out in, in, in the next few verses. You know, the world has plunged headlong into every kind of vice and debauchery and arrogantly refused to repent. You tell people you need to repent, otherwise God's going to judge. They laugh at you. Because they, there's no more any fear of God in, in society because the church is backed off preaching the, the whole gospel. And as a result of this, we have this utter chaos. Now we see Jesus arising as judge of the whole earth. We see the other side of Christ. The full revelation. This is not the Savior. This is the judge of the whole earth. The wrath of the Lamb. The one with all power and authority in heaven and earth now stands ready to judge the and again, this is where people get scared. But the church will be spared from this time of judgment. Why? Because we're such good and pleasant people? No, oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> because of all our good works? No. No, I don't think so. Okay. The truth is, we all sin and saved by grace. The covenant of salvation is that we don't go through the time of wrath. That's what you say from the time of wrath. This is what it means to be saved, that we will not be judged with the wicked. That's what salvation ultimately means. Only those who reject God's grace go into the tribulation. I want to say that again. Only those who reject God's yes. grace go into the tribulation. Yes. Really, very important. And that's why we must preach the gospel. We must witness. We must warn people of the dangers that are coming. We must encourage one another to talk about Jesus, to talk about the future. Because our job is to reach the lost. Can you say amen? amen. God expects you and I, wherever we are, if we're in the schools, we reach people at schools, we teachers and students and groundsmen. If we're in the factory, we reach the managing director, we, we reach the, the, the street sweeper. Our job is to tell Jesus, uh, people, about Jesus because there is a time of great wrath that is coming and we're going to see it. We must be witnesses to be an effective. We all want to be good and faithful servants. But if we, I doubt 
that we would be called good and faithful if we had not carried out our primary role, yeah. which is to tell people about Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. you don't have to be the world's greatest evangelist, but you've got to tell people about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So the Antichrist signs the covenant, and when, and when God, Jesus sees that, he breaks the seal, and the tribulation is triggered from him. Christ is directing the entire operation of what unfolds now. Revelation chapter 6, 1 and 2. Now we're coming down to it. And I watched as the Lamb opened the first seal of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say in a, a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as conqueror, bent on conquest. This particular rider has been the subject of much debate and confusion. Some say that this is Christ, because in Revelation 19 we see Christ coming on a white horse. We have a white horse here. We see Christ wearing a crown, and uh, this rider is wearing a crown. And so they say, this this obviously is Christ. But this is not Christ. This is a scene that's taking place on the earth. Where is Christ? Christ is in heaven opening the seven seal scroll. So this is not Christ. This is the Antichrist. And when you go back into the original language, the, the, the counterfeit is, uh, is revealed and the genuine is made very clear. And we're going we're gonna to look at that. You know, how many you know that the devil counterfeits everything? Yes. Mm. Amen. He sure does. Okay. So this is what happens. There is a holy trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Son is God in the flesh. Did you know that the devil counterfeits that as well? And you have a satanic trinity. You have Satan, you have the the false uh, prophet, and you have the beast. There's your satanic trinity. And it it goes on to say, uh, as God prepared a body for Christ, so the devil has prepared a body for the Antichrist. This is um, Satan incarnate, Satan in a body. The Antichrist is Satan in a body. And just as God prepared a body for Jesus, so the devil prepares a body for the Antichrist. And he becomes Satan's Superman, the devil's Messiah, if you like. He is the Antichrist. So let's look just very carefully at, at who this, because this is hugely significant. Whether this is Jesus or whether this is the Antichrist really is going to affect our understanding of, of, of who we're studying here. So let's go and begin to look at this. Jesus comes riding on a white horse and wearing a crown in Revelation 19. And the, so does the Antichrist. He does exactly the same thing. Why? Because he's trying to deceive us. He also rides a white horse and wears a crown. The devil is a deceiver, and he's done his work so well that there are prophecy teachers who will tell you that, the, that this person on the white horse is Jesus Christ. No, it's not, and we'll see when we begin to look in the original language. It reveals the genuine from the counterfeit. Revelation 19, this is, this is really the picture of Jesus, and we can see it, it becomes very clear. And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. Any guesses who is Faithful and True? Uh, Jesus. Jesus, amen. And with justice, he judges and makes war. And his eyes are like a blazing fire. That's the picture that we saw in Revelation 1, remember? Jesus had the eyes of blazing fire. And so, uh, this, uh, and it goes on to say, his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. 
That, that word crowns is the, is the Greek word diadema. And diadema is where we get our English word diadem from. And you know that the queen and, and royalty wear the diadem. It's the crown, a particular crown, that only queens or only, only royalty wear. Sovereigns and kings wear the crown, the diadem. And so, very clearly, this person in Revelation 19 is, is a point is, is Jesus. No question. He's crowned with many crowns. He is the king of kings, and he's wearing the royal diadem. The rider in Revelation 6, where we study, wears an inferior counterfeit crown. And so you can distinguish the difference, because the, the, the Jesus wears the diadema. But, but this rider who's wearing a white horse and also wearing a crown is wearing the Stephanus. He's wearing the twine wreath that was given at the games. Remember when in, the, in, in the ancient world everybody competed for a, 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 a crown that perishes, Paul talks about. This is the Stephanus, the crown, the twine wreath. It's an inferior and counterfeit crown. And it's like the prize that's given out at the games. This is further proof that the Antichrist is subduing and conquering mankind for sport. How many know that the devil loves to kill, to steal, and to destroy? That's his method of uh, modus operandi. That's what he does. And he loves to do that. And so he makes sport of the destruction of men and he's wearing the victor's crown because he's done it so well. Are you with me so far? Yeah. You know, it's really fascinating when you start talking about the Antichrist. He's a bad dude. And like, like any criminal or con artist, he has many aliases and uh, you know, many, many names and, 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 and different disguises that he tries to, to wear. And in fact, if you go through and study this whole picture, the, the, the Antichrist is a really bad dude because he has 33 different aliases. It's all the Antichrist, but they call him by different names. And so he, he becomes quite a slippery and elusive character to find out. I thought we'd go through all 33 of them. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> no, okay. I'm going to just give you a couple of the most common ones, and you'll just see how his name is, uses many different words. Uh, the Antichrist is also called the Beast. He's the son of perdition, the man of sin, the wicked one, the little horn, and the willful king in the book of that, that would be enough now just to, to illustrate the fact that he has all these different titles. I want to say to you, I don't believe that the Great Tribulation comes like lightning that, that flashes in an instant suddenly. I believe the Tribulation is, is slow, it's logical, it's chronological, and it's gradual. Uh, they, the, the one seal is opened at a time, and each seal becomes more intense, like labor pains. This is the picture that I see in the book of Revelation, because God in his mercy is trying to, to get every person, everyone he can save with, with, a, with a seal, that, that's somebody he values. Because how many know God doesn't want anybody to perish? Mm. Yeah. So, the problem that we have, uh, let, let me just say that where we are now in, in John's chronology, remember John divides the book for us so that we know very clearly, Revelation 1.19, that's the key to understanding the book, as, as we said many times, uh, which divides the book into three characters. The things that were, uh, when John meets saw Revelations 1, the resurrected Christ, the things that are, 
uh, were the, the seven churches in John's age uh, in, in, in chapters 2 and 3 uh, and to, to the end. But not only were the seven churches, the, the, these seven churches were symbolic of the entire church age. And so we're living uh, in, in the end of the seven churches, we're living at the end of the church age, and uh, it becomes really important. We are now in the church age, the things that are, and we are looking, as we're going through Revelation, into the future. Let me say this, we cannot drag the future events, the trumpets, the seals, and the bold judgments into today. That would be inconsistent. We are looking at future events. We cannot say, oh, this must be, this must be the, the, the bold judgment, this must be the seal, uh, or this must be the trumpet. No. Nothing that's going on on earth now has to do with the, the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Amen? These are future events. Yet we find a great many people who are interpreting Revelation in just that way, dragging all these judgments back into everyday life. No. These are future events. We can see the stage being set. We can see what God is doing. Like a chess player, a good chess player can see checkmate coming many moves in advance. Amen? Amen. And so we, we look at the scriptures and we can see God's moving his chess pieces around the board. We can see that, that, that this, every circumstance is beginning to line up and that God is getting ready to come for his church. Mm. But I don't believe that anything that's happening in the world today uh, is directly as a result of one of the seal judgments, the bowl judgments, or the trumpet judgments. I don't believe that that happens now. You can't drag the future back into the present. Having said that, when the Antichrist makes his appearance, the devil gives the Antichrist his power and his throne. Revelation 13.2 And the Antichrist offers the world something that we long for, peace and prosperity. He's one of the most persuasive men to ever walk upon the face of the earth. He's persuasive. He's intelligent. He, he, he is really a, a, a charismatic individual. He, he really engages with people well. And he's out there, and uh, he has this magnetic personality. And through coercion, manipulation, scheming, and conquest, he slowly takes control of the world, which finally uh, uh, culminates... Uh, and the Antichrist coming to power when he signs an international peace treaty with Israel. That's what really promotes him. What, what has been failed. Peace in the Middle East has been something that has eluded us for, for nearly a century. And so this man comes along and he establishes peace and uh, he doesn't do diplomacy. It's very interesting. When we read, read about uh, this man on the white horse in, in Revelation 6.1. He was given a bow, but there's no mention of arrows, because the Antichrist conquers not through war initially, he conquers through diplomacy and deceit and deception. He has a bow, but no arrows, because he conquers through diplomacy. And he has power over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. Revelation 3. You will not be able to escape the clutches. If you are still here uh, when, when uh, the Antichrist arises, you will not be able to escape the influence of the Antichrist. doesn't matter where you go, what you do, the Antichrist is going to have authority over... Pastor, what was that last scripture? Revelations 13, 7. Okay. He has power over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. 
With the Antichrist in the ascendancy, he now ascends to the world's premier uh, leadership position. This signals the unleashing of the 20 further judgments of God. Remember, Jesus is now judging uh, the Antichrist and, and the world who's been in total rebellion. So, the Antichrist is ruling and reigning. At first, things seem to be going well. This magnetic, magnetic charismatic, personal leader uh, it seems to be really winning over hearts and minds with people. And, and, and there's peace and prosperity uh, initially. But isn't that what Paul said would happen, that the Antichrist would do? Remember when we were studying in First Thessalonians uh, uh, in uh, chapter 5 and verse 2 and 3. Let me remind you, Jim. For you know very well that the day of the Lord, that is what? The tribulation. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How's that? Unexpectedly. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So here's the Antichrist. He's out there saying, man, things, things are going to be really good. It's going to be, they're going to enjoy prosperity. There's going to be world peace. It's all looking good. And then suddenly it all turns to custard. And it all really goes, I think, into a catastrophic upheaval. Pastor, is he a Syrian? Uh, yeah, there's lots of data, uh, data uh, debate about that. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't got to the end of the study, um, so I, I, I would rather hold off on that, uh, that question at the moment, because I don't want to mislead anybody. So, I would, it, it, so yeah. And is it right that no one can die in this time? Is that right? Yeah, that later on, uh, when, when the judgments, men are going to wish that they were dead, that they can't die. Uh, that's, that's how bad things become. But yes, that, that later on, that becomes a situation. But here, that, that you find that suddenly everything turns to custard because Jesus has opened the second seal. The Antichrist world is turned upside down. First it was great. Now Jesus opens the second wheel and all hell breaks loose on earth. The Antichrist alliance all crumble and war breaks out. Peace is a thing of the past. And we read about that in verses 3 and 4. Revelation 6, 3 and 4. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. And the rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make men slay each other. To him was given the sword. Okay. We're just about coming to an end. Can you bear with me for five more minutes? Yep. Okay. This, this, this is a time of unparalleled disaster and destruction that the world has never seen. It's a time of war and distress and great calamity. You know, the last century, 19th century, we saw incredible disasters. The, the, the communist dictators annihilated millions of people. Uh, the, the, the great wars, nearly 100 million people uh, died in, in the world wars. But we, we're facing, in this time, uh, when, when war breaks out on the earth during the tribulation, a time that unparalleled in, in all of history. Jesus spoke about this time in Matthew 24, and he's describing the events uh, of the tribulation. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world. That's Matthew 24, 21. Uh, and, and he goes on to say, uh, such was not from the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor shall ever be. The genocide and the, the murder and, and the destruction of the great wars and of the famines that have taken place, 
pale into insignificance when it comes to uh, the, the second seal being broken. It's, it's a time of absolute catastrophic devastation. The world has never seen anything like this. And in fact, Jesus goes on to say in the very next verse, he says, except those days be shortened, there would be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. You know, I was just thinking about that. If you go back just a hundred years in time, that statement that Jesus makes would be inconceivable, incomprehensible, that, that a, a war would destroy uh, uh, um, uh, like like it's talking about here. If you go back to the war, it's not talking about uh, the, the great destruction that are going to destroy so much um, that the world has ever seen before, um, the American Civil War. You know, when Jesus said, except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. We're talking about the absolute annihilation of every living thing. I think that this hints at the day in which you and I are living in. It speaks about a today where the weapons of mass destruction can destroy the... You know, the, 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 the NBC, the nuclear, bacterial, and chemical weapons, can destroy every living person many times over. Yeah. No flesh could be yeah. saved. Mm. These are the days in which we're living. A hundred years ago, that was inconceivable. Yeah. A hundred years ago, they, they were riding around on, 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 on horse carts, man. And now we're having a mass mass destruction that can wipe out. No flesh shall be saved. But Jesus steps in and and stops at this carnage. So we get to the third seal. Revelation 6, 5. And when he'd opened the third seal, I heard the beast say, Come and see. And behold, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny. And three measures of barley for a penny. See that they hurt not the pearl of the wine. This speaks of a time of unprecedented famine. Absolutely unprecedented famine. You know, we're living in pretty prosperous conditions today. The world is, is, is doing pretty well. Peaceful, prosperous right now. And the Food Aid Foundation is an organization that actually calculates uh, world uh, hunger statistics. They go around the world and they see... Uh, what people are eating. And according to the, this uh, aid foundation, the Food Aid Foundation, they say that 795 million people in the world today do not have enough food to lead a healthy, active life. That's about one in nine people on the earth in optimum conditions. You've all seen those horror stories of children picking through the garbage uh, in, in, in places like Asia and, and uh, where they're starving and they, they're going through the rubbish dumps. And, uh, and eating food. This is in a time. Can I ask what was it again? Something aid? What was it? Food aid. World aid. Food aid. Food aid. Mm. The Food Aid Foundation, that's really what it's called. The Food Aid Foundation. And they've come up that one in nine people under optimum conditions are struggling for food. When men stop fight, farming and start fighting on a scale never seen before, the catastrophic effect of starvation, malnutrition, and death are going to be unparalleled. Revelation 6-7. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, the pale horse, and his name that sat upon him was death. And hell followed him. And power was given unto them over a fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts one quarter of the earth's population is affected now. 
And we've just had four seals that have been opened by Christ. He's judging the most rebellious. You know, that's, that is, that's absolutely incredible. That's not tens of millions or, or hundreds of millions. That is actually thousands of millions of people that are destroyed as the first four seals are opened. The devil and the Antichrist are reeling. But even under this onslaught, they refuse to repent like many of their devotees. But the truth is, there is a way of escape. Amen? We must warn people. We must be a witness. There is a God that loves them and longs to bless them and spare them from this devastation. He died to save us. We have an opportunity to not only change people's lives for the better, we will change their destinies as they give their hearts to Jesus. Jesus stands open with his arms open wide, ready to receive the worst of sinners. Folks, we are very close, I believe, to the rapture of the church. I believe we are, we are living in the 11th hour, the 59th minute of the 11th hour. I believe Jesus is coming back so soon. We've got to warn our friends. We must do our job. We've got to... I, I want to challenge you this week to talk to somebody about Christ. You don't necessarily need to lead them to salvation. But please, I want to challenge you. Speak to somebody about the Lord. I want to ask if you would bow your heads in a word of prayer this morning as you consider that challenge.